Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Uh, Nicholas Reimer from uh, the University of Sydney. Uh, about a very, very uh, topical issue. Uh, Dr. Nick Simmer is a senior lecturer in the discipline of English and writing at the University of Sydney, and uh, he has written for The Guardian, Jacobian, Al Jazeera English, The Australian, The Sydney Morning Herald, and many other publications. Today he's here to talk with us about a book he published with Rowan and Littlefield publishers called Boycott Theory and the Struggle for Palestine, Universities, Intellectualism, and Liberation. Nick, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks very much for having me, Morteza. Uh, I've sort of known you on Facebook, as I mentioned, offline for about two years, and I know that how passionate you are for issues of justice and you're a social activist yourself. So I'm keen to know a little bit about yourself. Tell us about yourself, about your field of expertise, and where does that passion for, for justice comes from? Well, Morteza, I'm a I'm a I'm an, an academic. I'm a linguistics academic, and I work mainly on the history and philosophy of of the language sciences. But I'm also a, a political activist. I'm a socialist, and you know, I, I I think I want I want I want to see a better and more just world. I think I think many people do, um, and I have the privilege to actually be able to. Do, do something to advance that, or at least I, I try to by my involvement in various activist campaigns, by my involvement in, in left-wing politics. And I don't think it's true that academic work and the f- struggle for social justice are the same. I think they're certainly not. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But I think that there are productive links that exist between them that really can, um, in, there's, there's a mutual enrichment between them that that's possible without compromising the nature of either. And uh, I can clearly see where the book comes from, right? The Boycott Theory and the Struggle for Palestine. Can you tell us what made you decide to write this book? What's the story of the inception of this book? Well, for a long time, I've been involved in the campaign for the academic boycott of Israel. 
and the BDS movement or the BDS campaign more, more generally. And it progressively just dawned on me that there's a real need for a book-length treatment of the, of the topic, which is a, a defence of the academic boycott, but also an attempt to analyse it in a way which really tries to get at the question of what are the obstacles that lie in the way of the academic boycott in particularly Western universities? And by the same token, what are the factors behind the success that the boycott has actually had? So I think, you know, there's no lack of self-reflection among BDS activists, far from it. What there's less of is extended public treatments of the questions that get debated within the movement all the time. And that's what I set out to, to provide in the book. And I also tried to inform it by some of the, the, the work that I do in, in linguistics and elsewhere. Uh, I, I can definitely see the merit in writing a book-length treatment of this issue because I've read a lot of articles about why it matters or why some people might be against it. But I guess having a book-length discussion of this issue, and especially you have covered a lot of different topics, which we will talk about as we go ahead. Um, in uh, So let's, let's talk about uh, why you talk why you say that boycotts are kind of normal in academia because a lot of people might think of it as a form of exclusion um even for people who are not really involved in the form of forms of injustices that we're trying to fight but can you tell us why why it's important why it matters and maybe you could also give us some examples of successful cases of academic boycotts well boycott you're right it certainly is a form of exclusion um the surprising fact is that in fact, boycott or boycott-like behaviour is ubiquitous in the academic world. It's just that we usually don't refer to it by that name. Um, I, can, I can easily give you examples of, of boycott behaviour. So one obvious one that springs to mind is boycotts on particular publishers. So the most notorious case is the, the, the boycott that has been called for against the Dutch multinational Elsevier, who are a profiteering publisher who take publicly generated research and monetize it and extract ex enormous profits from it. There's currently uh, a boycott against writing for or reviewing for Elsevier, which has been signed up to by 17,000 academics. Many uh, journals which previously were published with Elsevier have been withdrawn, withdrawn um, to go open access. And, and so mainstream, actually, is that movement that uh, in 2018, UCLA encouraged its faculty to refuse to undertake peer review work for, for Elsevier or to, or to publish for them. And that is an academic boycott in all but name, which is endorsed or which has been endorsed at the, you know, one, in one of the premier US universities. Obviously, that... The, the examples of boycotting in academia are, are far from limited to that. There are many examples of conference boycotts. So it's common for people to call for conferences to be boycotted if there's not uh, balanced gender representation in, in keynote speeches, for example. Following Trump's election in 2016 and his you know, notorious Muslim ban, thousands of academics called for a boycott of international conferences held in the, in the US. There's currently a call for academic boycotts against 
Russian universities that are, you know, responsible for or complicit with the invasion of Ukraine. There are boycotts on rankings, you know, uh, the, the, the German Sociological Association, to give just one example, um, has called for the, the, the boycotting of institution rankings, league tables, seven Indian institutes of technology have done the same thing. And then, of course, there are things which, there are things like strikes. You know, when, when academics go on strike, they're effectively boycotting or preventing the work of the institution from going ahead and they're doing that for a political goal. They're, they're in principle identical, I think, to, uh, to the other kinds of boycotts. So it's actually, uh, it's far from uncommon in, in academic life. And there's one very interesting twist on all of this because it's got a specific relevance to Israel as well. Because it turns out that boycotting played an important role in the in the prehistory of Israeli higher education, in the sense that in um, in 1914, Zionist teachers in what was then still Palestine boycotted schools which were run by the Hilfsverein der Deutschen Juden, the German Jews Aid Society. That was the body that was actually behind the creation of the first university in Israel, which is the Technion, the Israel Institute of Technology. And the point of that boycott by the teachers was to say that the language of instruction at the Technion had to be Hebrew. And that boycott was successful. Hebrew is or was the language of instruction at the Technion. It still still is. Um, and so there's this fundamental feature of Israeli higher education, the very first university in what became Israel, that is actually a product of, of a boycott. So that anyone arguing that boycotts have no role to play in academia, anyone making that argument is really ignoring the, the, a key moment in the development of, of the higher education system in Israel itself. Well, that that was a fascinating example. I could easily disarm a lot of critics. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have given us a lot of great examples of how boycotts might might work, work in academia. Um, I'm 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 kind of keen to know about your book. Kind of offers a an an anatomy of higher education, and you you discuss some of the obstacles that prevent academics from joining. Boycotts, maybe especially in the United States. I don't know how it's how common it is in Europe or how difficult those obstacles are in Europe or or, or Australia. But in the U.S., we read a lot. A lot of academics lose their jobs simply because of a tweet. And I guess I don't remember the name of the famous Palestinian academics in the U.S. Uh, I forgot his name. Stephen. Stephen. Yes. Stephen, yeah, so who, who lost his job, who wasn't even able to get a job in Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken, American University of Beirut. And then he turned out to be, and he, he, he became uh, a bus driver. Uh, so there are lots of examples. So what are some of these obstacles and uh, that prevent people from doing this boycott? And this is, like you said, it's quite common. But when it comes to Israel, there seems to be a lot of sensitivity about that. And a lot of people are obviously worried about their academic career as well. Can you talk about these obstacles? Yeah, absolutely. And what what you say is true, Morteza. I think the primary consideration is that universities throughout the West are really quite highly repressive and illiberal environments. 
Um, that's always been the case, I think, in in certain ways, and it's intensified under under neoliberalism, for want for want of a better word, under managerialism, under the the current regime that governs tertiary education in in our kind of society and economy. In the book, I refer to Israel to, to universities as little Israels, and what I mean by that is that universities really replicate on a much smaller scale the repressive and authoritarian practices that characterize Israel as a state. And they do so while at the same time surrounding themselves with all of this mystique of liberalism and progressivism. They present themselves as these highly critical, liberal, free environments, while within themselves they enforce all sorts of authoritarian practices, of which the repression of Palestine advocacy is just the most obvious example. So that's, I think, that's the the starting point for any attempt to understand how how the the Israel boycott is received in in universities. And and part of that environment, I think, is just a general professional aversion that academics have to explicit politics. You know, we're not on the whole political creatures. We often pretend to be. But when real politics rears its ugly head, we often run as far as our legs can can carry us. So really, our reluctance to embrace BDS, which after all is asking us to politicise our academic work um, in a way that presupposes that it's not already political. You know, we're being asked to drop the illusion that our academic work is, is apolitical, and many people are just very unwilling to do that. And that a so that apoliticality of the the profession is a very important part of my analysis, and I think that the the circumstance that allows us to see it most clearly is the profession's general unwillingness, which couldn't have been demonstrated more clearly, to just defend itself against austerity and neoliberalism. You know, the the academic profession has invited its own devastation by the forces of, you know, the neoliberal economy. And we have barely stood up to it, I think. And there's a lot of self-criticism that we need to go into because of that. And so Palestinians really can't expect strong support from a profession that often can't even bring itself to defend its own members. So there's this general disengagement from politics. I, I could talk much more about that. Um, and its its effect is really to its effect is quietistic, in the sense that it simply reinforces the the status quo. You know, Adorno, in his contribution to the authoritarian personality, he's got this great observation, which I think is really still true of universities. So many decades after that book was written, Adorno talks about the the tendency that educational systems in general have to. He says something like to discourage what's speculative, to to discourage anything that can't be immediately substantiated or proven by by data and turned into facts and figures. So there's there's this positivism, I think, that just infuses university culture, you know, league tables, enrolment figures, citation counts, grant income. We live in this world of, of facts and it prevents us, I think, from being speculative about those things that the facts concern, our own professional life. It stops us from seizing our own potential to imagine a different kind 
of higher education and a different kind of relationship to, to knowledge and education. So, that, you know, another way of putting that would be to just say that, you know, academia is a, <laughs> a white-collar, you know, liberal, largely conformist, largely middle-class profession, and I think that's largely the truth. Uh, I, I, I kind of I think it's ironic to say that I like the comments that you made about how that kind of imaginative faculty has been stifled by all these by, by neoliberal capitalism or all the other forces. I, I think I was listening to an interview by the late David Graeber who said the same thing about the state of politics. Imaginative politics is unfortunately dead when we have to come to choose between either uh, extremely stupid looking right wingers like Johnson, Boris Johnson, or Donald Trump, or kind of centrists like Barack Obama or Joe Biden, which pretty much stand for the status quo. Uh, I, I, I loved your comment again about uh, area you mentioned about the boycotts of some Russian universities, and I can I think when it comes to Palestine and Israel, there is uh, it. I wasn't naive, but I guess it kind of became clearer to me with the invasion of Ukraine that the kind of language that is used to talk about war is quite different when it's when it's a European country like Ukraine say and and, and a kind of another country in the Middle East there was no hesitation to condemn Russia to ask for a boycott some people went went too far to say let's not t- t- teach Dostoevsky because a lot of right-wingers would even love Dostoevsky for his conservative ideas but the same thing is happening right now in in, in Palestine and Israel they're bombing infrastructure, but that that strong language of condemnation is not used. And again, we had successful examples, which you talk in the book, with South Africa uh, and even their their, their sports team. Uh, but again, it's still a touchy issue when it comes to Israel. No, it, it absolutely is, because it's bound up in a whole conceptual architecture of settler colonialism, um, deeply embedded racialization of the middle of middle eastern people you know orientalism um towards middle eastern people racism um the the logic of you know the 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 war on terror the war of civilization israel as an outpost of quote-unquote western civilization in a quote-unquote sea of barbarity so all of these these geopolitical and deeply embedded cultural stereotypes obviously come to bear with a vengeance when we're talking about action which is directed against Israeli academic institutions. And, of course, there's the lingering and correctly lingering memory of the, uh, of the, the tragedy of the Holocaust, which still, you know, which has, has rightly left extremely deep, uh, deep wounds and has made an extremely deep mark, rightly so, in the Western imaginary. It's it's useful to note, I think, that the 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 academic boycott of Israel is much weaker than the academic boycott of South Africa. So BDS in against Israel is an institutional boycott in the sense that it doesn't target individual Israeli academics. There's nothing in BDS which says you shouldn't collaborate with someone just because they work at an Israeli university. The boycott only targets official level, official institutional level academic arrangements. So it says you shouldn't go to a conference at a university in Israel that's sponsored by the university. You shouldn't collaborate with people who hold positions of responsibility 
in Israeli universities like deans or presidents because they've chosen to make themselves accountable for the uh, for the responsibility that Israeli universities have in maintaining anti-Palestinian racism, maintaining apartheid, maintaining settlement. Maybe we'll talk about those details later, but at the moment the point is that, you know, if you've decided to rise up in the hierarchy of a university in Israel, if you've become a president or a dean, you, you incur some accountability for the official status and the official roles of your university in maintaining anti-Palestinianism. That's the kind of target that the boycott has. We, uh, we'll talk about it as we go ahead, because I have a question on that as well. Uh, but before that, I think when you were introducing yourself, uh, you mentioned that being an academic has, uh, some people might think that being an academic has uh, has only one thing to do, and that's to be in university and do research. And when I was a student myself, I was uh, I was mainly lonely. I was doing this PhD. It was difficult. I was Sometimes I was questioning, why the hell am I doing this? And then I went to a lot of conferences, and... Uh, one thing I still couldn't get my head around, I knew that it was important, but then I said, what's the point of talking about all this when you can't take it out of university, when you can't make a palpable change in the lives of the people that you're uh, fighting for, you're writing for? Or again, I interviewed several people about uh, about how why, why critical theory has become so much disentangled, disengaged from the public. I was reading a few weeks ago, there was a conference, I guess, a small conference or a symposium in Melbourne University about Marxism. And I read some of the writings. I've done a PhD. I couldn't understand some of them. And I said, how do you expect people to understand? No wonder there's this big disengagement. What is it with, I think the title of your book, again, you have intellectualism there. Is it a red flag? What role does intellectualism play in this? Am I Hero is sort of Edward said, with all the criticism I have of his book, Orientalism, I feel sometimes it's reductive, but no one can deny the fact that he was a great intellectual who took that knowledge that he had out and turned it into a, a, a sort of an activism. So do you think inherently maybe activism and um, intellectual life or being an academic are at odds with one another? No, no, they're not at odds with one another at all. They're different, though. And I think that something that it's very, that it's crucial to insist on in our day and age is the importance of carving out a space for reflection and analysis and judgment, which isn't beholden to the immediate political imperatives of the moment. I think that there is a real role for people who think and for people who do so rigorously, slowly, calmly in a way that is independent of what's happening in in the actual world there's value in that you know if we think of something if we think of a discipline like mathematics for instance you know i think it's clear that you know mathematics is a form of particularly complex sophisticated rigorous thought and it's clear that its intrinsic connection to politics is very distant you know so there are ways of thinking which probably have to be divorced from immediate political realities. And similarly, even when reflection is about political issues in general, I do think that there's an imperative for, for people to think and to do so unhurriedly, objectively, dispassionately, with a cool head. But 
but and here's this but is is really important. I think we tend to think as academics that that work we do, that work we do as researchers, scholars, thinkers, we think that it it actually is inherently politically progressive. Um, and I just don't think that that's necess- necessarily true beyond the extent to which it expresses a particular capacity that we have as rational creatures, which should be expressed and which should be fostered. So it's progressive in that extent. But what it isn't is political action in the world in its own right. You know, you're not going to solve any problems of the world by writing an academic paper. And I think that many academics would never put that point so bluntly as that. They would never say, I am solving the problems of the world by writing an academic paper. But I still do think that there is a cultural assumption that underlies a lot of work, particularly in the sort of progressive humanities, which is that that's enough. That's my contribution. I I don't need to do more. And maybe the really interesting and important thing about the academic boycott of Israel, or really any academic boycott, is just that it's a case where political advances, concrete political advances, don't come from engaging in academic work, but they come from suspending it, at least suspending it in the university, because that's what the academic boycott is doing. It's saying, look, there are forms of collective intellectual labor that we could be undertaking in collab in official Israeli contexts, in Israeli-sponsored contexts, in collaboration with Israeli university officials. And maybe those collaborations are intellectually very important, but that's not the main political consideration about them. The main consideration is that they have all sorts of other effects which consolidate Israel's position, which consolidate its soft power, which, you know, reinforce its status as an ordinary player in the normal networks of intellectual exchange, which don't, you know, which which obscure the fact that it's an apartheid state. And if we collaborate, we allow all of those obfuscations, all of that obscuring to happen. We allow it to be forgotten that what we're dealing with is a are key institutions in a brutal apartheid, murderous, racist regime of of the worst kind. So there's an important lesson there, I think, which is a lesson about, you know, in the book, I think I, I don't think I do, I call it smart washing, this problem of smart washing. And I use that term to try and convey the, the mystifying use or the mystifying appeal, I suppose, to notions like intellectual complexity, notions like nuance to suppress political action. And we, you know, we, we see smart washing all the time in the objections that get made against the Palestine solidarity movement. You know, we get we get told, in fact, I was just told it this morning. I was just told it this morning. It's too simplistic to say that Israel is an apartheid state. It's too unnuanced to say Israel practices settler colonialism. It's much more complicated than that. And the reason that those criticisms are levelled isn't to actually achieve better intellectual understanding. The main reason they're levelled is to to block progressive activism. So I I, I do sort of at the end of the book end with a a sort of defence of a certain very particular kind of of progressive anti-intellectualism 
And that's something which is, I think, quite uncomfortable on the left, because on the left, where where the, you know, we're still, I think, the we we inherit this essentially Marxist legacy, which is about the it's about praxis, praxis, the necessary intertwining of theoretical reflection and revolutionary activity. You know, Lenin famously said, you know, without revolutionary theory, there's no revolutionary movement. And obviously, hardly anyone is a Leninist these days. I'm not a Leninist. There are Leninists, but most people on the left are certainly not Leninists. But I think that idea that there is an intellectualist quality to to the, the concrete unfolding of a progressive program in society is very deeply embedded and it's hard for us, especially it's hard for intellectuals, for academics, to separate themselves from that and to really see the ways in which retreating into intellectual reflection can actually be anti-progressive, as I think it can. Long answer. Sorry, Morteza. No, no, that that was perfect. (laughs) Uh, Another question I have is is that obviously your book is not only about boycott you talk about you t- there, there's more to it than a simple boycott and in one of the chapters you bring up the uh, the the publication of a critical edition of hitler's mein camp if i'm pronouncing the german word correctly what is the significance of uh, that episode that you have introduced in the book yeah thanks for asking about that because i, th- I think it's one of the aspects of the book that will be less discussed um, and it really relates to exactly the point that I was making just then, which is this idea that engaging in intellectual reflection is not always the right thing to do. It's not always the most progressive thing to do. And this Mein Kampf thing is an illustration of that. So maybe I'll just, would it be helpful perhaps if I just lay out the facts um, as, as, an, as an illustration of that? So, you know, um, at the end of 2015, um, the, the copyright of, of Mein Kampf expired. And that meant that the book was likely to enter the public domain and be able to be broadly distributed. And, and a German historical institute in Munich responded to that possibility by publishing a new critical edition of the work. It's these two massive hardback volumes where you've got Hitler's text in German, of course, in the middle of the page, in dark font, and it's surrounded in light font by copious historical rectification of all of the false claims that Hitler makes in the the course of that book. And in doing that, and you know, there was immense intellectual labor that, that went into this. It's a monument of scholarship, I think, in many ways. And that had a, this grandiose intellectual ambition that the editorial team at one point said that or they spoke in a way that suggested that they thought of this as really constituting anti-fascist political action in its own right. They talked about their critical edition as defusing the the bomb of of Mein Kampf, as though you know Mein Kampf was this unexploded World War II bomb which had suddenly been found under the ruins or under you know a car park somewhere and needed to be defused before it could create massive damage. That was the image that they had. Um, and their idea was that the way to fight Nazism was to just do scholarly work, show why Hitler was wrong. Um, and they did that. 
I'm sure they did it very successfully. As a, you know, I'm not a specialist in German history. In, his, in German history, I can't in any way comment on the scholarly worth of the project. What interests me is its politics. And what's notable about that is the just massive public spectacle that this republication triggered. Originally, it was a print run of just 4,000 copies, and it went through six reprints and 85,000 copies in a year, and it just created this unprecedented, you know, public discussion and controversy. I think it's not unrealistic or unfair to say that what it did was create a new Hitler phenomenon. Um, and so it brought it brought Hitlerism. It brought the Bible of Nazism to the front of public discussion in Germany as an object which wasn't just obviously a piece of racist filth which should just be which should just be consigned to oblivion and rejected and condemned out of hand. That's what it is. That's what should happen to it when it's in the public domain. Instead, it made it an object of controversy that needed to be taken seriously. Where is Hitler wrong? Which of his historical claims are actually incorrect? So it took something that had previously been a historical or a political axiom, you know, the falsity of Nazism, and turned it into something which now needed to be the the object of scholarly debate. Now we need scholarly argument to show that Hitler actually was in fact wrong. And, you know, I I argue that really this was a serious political mistake, I think, and it was a clear case where the intellectual engagement that the, the editors had with the text of Hitler's book just should have been refused. We would have been, the public sphere in Germany would have been better off if this new Hitler phenomenon had not been created. And that's parallel to an argument that Palestine solidarity activists always make about the academic boycott, because what they say is that there are cases where engaging with Israeli academic institutions is also counterproductive, quite regardless of the intellectual quality and the intellectual contribution that that engagement might result in. There's a more important political dimension, which is being ignored. So there's it's a there's a purely intellectualist, you know, interpretation of academic work, an, acad- uh, an interpretation of academic work which purely sees it in its own scholarly terms and refuses to see it as a political gesture with political and social consequences. Because this hit, and I'll end on this point. You know, the 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 republication, they made it a social phenomenon. They were, you know. The, the room where they, they held a press conference to announce it, there were, there were, it was full of TV cameras, full of journalists. They chose not to just confine it within the terms of the academy. They cho- there would have been ways of creating that intellectual contribution without giving oxygen to, you know, the, the, the book itself. And that opportunity was was missed. The French edition, actually, even in so, even something as basic as what the editors decided to choose to call the book. So they called it Mein Kampf, a, a critical edition. And the way the media reacted to that was to put out headlines which said things like, Hitler is back, or Mein Kampf is back, which is a deeply destructive message. The French historical edition didn't fall into that trap. 
the French historical edition was called Historicizing Evil. And then there was a subtitle, which is something like a critical edition of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And that's a very different framing. And I think it's a much less damaging one. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So this is an an issue which raises parallel questions about the politics of academic engagement, but it does so in a completely different context from the Israel-Palestine context. And I, I I, I go into it in the book in order to offer a sort of triangulation of many of the issues that we see brought up continually in the case of in the case of the academic boycott uh, and, and i think it's a perfect segue this this uh, part of the book you talked about is a perfect segue to my next question which is about the idea of freedom freedom of speech and uh, academic freedom which is uh again i guess it's a huge debate about it in the united states maybe not so much in, in australia or europe and in the book, you, you present a sort of a materialist analysis of that. So can you tell us about the role of uh, freedom of speech and why it matters for the academic boycott? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that example, the Mein Kampf example, is a good segue into it. Because one of the things, when, when the editors of that book were faced with the criticism that they shouldn't be doing that work, they shouldn't be bringing it onto the, into the public sphere, one of the things they regularly said is that, they shouldn't be censored. So they interpreted a call not to engage in scholarly work as a call for censorship. And I think it's obvious that they're very different things. The choice not to do a political, a a bit of academic work is not censorship. It's a choice about where your energies should be directed. And that conflation is very symptomatic, I think, of the immense confusion that surrounds notions of freedom of speech and, and academic freedom, which isn't quite the same, but which is, is clearly related. These things are usually invoked in debates like this, in this talismanic way, which is just meant to shut the discussion down. People think that they can say, oh, you're violating my freedom of speech, or I've got academic freedom, and that's the end of the discussion. You know, So there's very little analysis, I think, that is that these notions are... are subjected to when they enter the political arena. But really, obviously, they're absolutely central. And I think that the key thing for me, I'm a linguist, right? So I study language and I, I do so empirically. I treat language as an empirical object, something out there in the world, which we should try and look at as clearly and as realistically as possible. Um, and we should confront our ideas about it 
again, you know, on the tribunal of the evidence. Um, and it's in that spirit that I try to approach this question in, in the book. And the, the central thing we have to do, I think, is that we have to look at what speech actually does. We have to have an accurate, accurate conception of it, um, and a more, you know, more so than is than is assumed in most discussions. We need to treat it like an empirical object. And the thing that I I concentrate on later in the book, at least, is not actually the act of boycotting Israeli academic institutions, but it's another part of Palestine activism, which is disruption of of Zionists who are invited onto campuses to give essentially political speeches. So this is something that happens all the time. You know, the Israeli ambassador is invited somewhere and pro-Palestine activists heckle, disrupt, perform interventions during that address in order to press the um, cause of Palestine justice. And that obviously, whenever it happens, is decried. And there are cries about the, the... the violation of speech rights that that has happened. And so I try in the book to explore that question, to give quite a serious analysis of the politics and linguistics of disruption. And it's predicate, I, I, we can't go into it all now, <laughs> you know, read the book, but it's, it's or don't read the book, but um, there are lots of great books that people should read. Many, you know, maybe listening to this podcast is more than enough, but Speak. The, the, what I say in the book is that speech is an object of social conflict, and it has to be approached as that. In that, political actors regularly do things to try and shape the terrain over which speech is broadcast, to amplify some voices and to mute others, to open, close, structure the platforms that are available, and the, the things they do may or may not be legitimate. And when one of the things I say is that, and I talk about is that when it's impossible to win a platform for pro-Palestinian speech on campuses, as it very, very frequently is, then the only way that a platform can be obtained is at someone else's expense. Um, There's only, the only way to obtain a platform is to intervene in a platform that is actually authorised, namely a Zionist one. So I think that that's one of the points. It's sort of an obvious point. You know, if we can't get to speak for ourselves, we have to take someone else's platform. That's sort of obvious. But what's less obvious, I think, is what lies behind the objections to that. Because when Palestine activists disrupt a Zionist speaker, and look, I've been present at these kinds of things in the past. I've experienced this and the ensuing public controversy here in Sydney. The, the presupposition that always lies behind the, the objections to the disruption is that what speech is, is just a matter of someone communicating information. It's just about transferring information. And, you know, the idea is what could be wrong with that? What sort of violent, terroristic, illiberal person are you that you would want to prevent the simple and necessary act of communication, of information being transferred. It's just words. It's just telling you stuff. If we don't have, if we're not able to communicate, what hope is there for us? So there's this information transfer model of speech that is deeply wasted in, rooted in Western conceptions of language, and it comes out in those situations where um, where there are critiques made at, at 
disruption, but there's something that is just really, really wrong with it at a really basic level, which is this. When the Zionist ambassador comes, so much of the stuff that he or she says is already known to the audience. You know, if speech is about information transfer, it's not information transfer, it's information repetition. You know, the Zionist ambassador speaks to a lot of talking points, which are entirely well known to the audience. In many cases, the audience isn't there to listen and let things really take sink in and take notes. You know, they're there, it's a political gesture. And so the idea that the only thing that is happening is information transfer represents this highly reductive model of what happens in real live speech events. Because it's obvious, sure, there are some new things that an audience hears when they come to a, a speech, obviously. But there are many, many things that they don't. And there are many other things that are going on when the Zionist ambassador, for the Israeli ambassador, for want of a, a better example, is speaking. There's so much, there's so much more multidimensional, the speech um, that's engaged in those contexts than, than we presuppose when we give critiques of it. You know, the, the critique of speech, of disruption, is predicated on this idea of speech as communication. And what they, they do is condemn any disruption of communication because it um, violates this, this thing that is envisaged as this sort of bloodless, rational protocol of inter- information transfer. And maybe, maybe you know, I've said enough, but may, maybe an illustration of this might help, Morteza, which and I'll, I'll just relate what happened to me. It's quite a long time ago now. Actually. So actually, I wanted to ask you if you had ever but go on. It's the best best chance now, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I just in and I do discuss this in the book some years ago now, a long time ago actually. I was present at a talk which was put on at Sydney University and publicly advertised by a, a British apologist for Israeli war crimes who'd been brought out to Australia by Zionist organisations. And he gave a talk which was called something like Ethical Dilemmas of Military Tactics in Middle East Conflict or something like that. Um, and this particular person, his name is Richard Kemp, um, is on the record as in the past having described Israel as world leaders in actions to minimise civilian ca- casualties. Um, and he's reiterated the belief that, you know, no army in the history of warfare has done more than the Israeli Defence Forces to protect innocent civilians, you know. And he came and said that kind of thing at his talk in Sydney. And on this way that we think about language that I've been talking about, all he's doing there is just stating propositions. He's just transferring literal meanings, if you want. Now, they might be true. They might be they, they might be false, but really they're just ideas and their political role is to contribute to this broader, uh, implicitly rational debate about the Middle East. So they're just words. They're just ideas. And, you know, the idea is why would you just want to disrupt ideas? But if we have a more sophisticated and more empirically accurate conception of what happens in empirical speech events, we see that that talk is so much more. I mean, it's a sort of simple, obvious point. You know, it's, you know, that talk is a provocation. Um, it's a slur. It's a moment in a bid for authority as an expert. 
It's an instance of political organising because it's intended to rally a particular political community around a set of beliefs. It's about community affirmation. It's about institutional legitimation. It's about arousing certain emotions in the audience. It's so much more than this bloodless information transfer model of speech that we have. And if we don't approach it as a multidimensional thing, we won't be able to assess the rights and wrongs of disrupting it, and we won't be able to have a meaningful tactical discussion about when disrupting it might be appropriate and when it might not be. And I, I try to go into that question in, in some detail. In, in what I try, I try to do it in a sophisticated way in the book, and I've got an appendix to that chapter which actually relates it to uh, work done by Judith Butler and others. Uh, I think another great part of your book, it, and it's something that very few people have tried to address, is that you talk about the state of academia or universities in both Israel and also the occupied Palestine. Um, maybe that can put into perspective why BDS is important. So can you tell us about this? What is the state of universities in these, these two areas like, uh, the, the state of higher education? Yeah, of course I can, Morteza. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for people in universities to understand exactly what higher education is like in those two parts of the world because the academic boycott is a call to academics to break uh, contact, institutional contact with Israel in order to promote higher education and educational rights in Palestine. So if we don't actually know what the situation on the ground in those two places is, then the whole question becomes very abstract and, and disembodied. So the book starts with a description um, of the concrete details of Israeli and Palestinian universities. And, you know, I, I start with the Palestinian side and I assemble a whole lot of testimony, which is on the public record, but which is very often inaccessible, just about what it's like trying to run higher education under conditions of apartheid, ethnic cleansing, military occupation. And I supplement all of that publicly uh, documented material with what West Bank academics themselves have told me about the conditions of, that they work in and what I've observed myself um, in, in West Bank, Bank universities. And, you know, the term scholasticide is often used um, to describe what is going on in, in, Israeli, uh, in, in Palestinian higher education. Palestinian higher education, like Palestinian education in general, is the object of scholasticide by the Israeli occupation. Um, just as Israel wants to snuff out Palestinian rights in general, Palestinian educational rights are deeply, deeply undermined, if not annihilated. And, you know, we're recording this, of course, um, in mid-October in 2023, during the horrifying, the horrifying assault that is currently underway against Gaza. You know, when I last looked, you know, there were hundreds and 1,300, I think, people known to be under the rubble in Gaza still, uh, hundreds and hundreds of children who we can't get out, who can't be got out. So that's happening now. And one of the targets 
was Al-Aqsa University, you know, in, 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 in Gaza. So there's very direct, very, is, Palestinian universities are the literal targets of Israeli bombs and, and missiles, and there are many, many under, other ways in which the very possibility of real higher education for Palestinians is just stifled and, 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 and repressed. So that's the first side of it. The second side of it is the role that Israeli universities play in sustaining these policies and, you know, in, in, in sustaining Israel's permanent war effort. And I try to document that in, in some detail because that's, of course, the central justification for the academic boycott in the first place. We wouldn't be calling for a, a boycott of Israeli academic institutions if they weren't these essential pillars of apartheid and anti-Palestinianism. And I, look, I can't go into the details with you here now. And again, they're a matter of simple public record, but maybe there are a couple of... And the other thing to say, actually, is that they're not even disputed by boycott opponents, so they're not even in, in question. But what's worth emphasising, perhaps, is just how deep and multifaceted this institutional involvement of Israeli higher education is with the oppression of the Palestinian people. You know, we hear a lot about how Israeli institutions are uh, hubs for weapons research. That's quite well known, but it's probably less well known that Israeli universities are responsible for training officers in the military. We don't hear enough about their role in um, in in hosting think tanks, which basically prop up the Israel security and apartheid state. So there's the Institute for National Security Studies, an extremely prominent Israeli think tank hosted at uh, Tel Aviv University. There's the, the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies at Bar Ilan Universities. All of these are proof positive of the, the very close symbiosis between higher education and the military complex in Israeli society. You know, just the other day, I saw this analysis from the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University in the context of this current, in this current escalation of ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. And it, called, what, it referred to what it called a cognitive war between Israel and Palestine. It said, look, we've got the kinetic war, which is a horrific euphemism for the, 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 the missiles and the, and, the, and the tanks and the white phosphorus, but then we've got the cognitive war. Um, and this analysis was saying that Israel is actually behind in the, in the cognitive war, and what it means by that is the battle for hearts and minds. And universities are central in, are they central tools of Israeli propaganda and those kinds of institutional involvement, I mean, students can get course credit in many universities in Israel for contributing to online Zionist propaganda against the Palestine justice movement and against Palestinians. You can get course credit for that. Um, and that's really the, the kind of intrinsic institutional involvement that that is behind the call for the academic boycott, the Palestinian-led call for the university boycott. It's worth mentioning, actually, that the, you know, Palestinian academics had called for 
had called for, for a boycott of Israeli universities for a long time before BDS came around. So this is a fundamentally Palestinian-initiated and long-standing political, political campaign. And if you've got universities which are so knee-deep, neck-deep in war crimes, apartheid, and all of these things, then the call to make the leaders of those universities accountable for them is not in any way unreasonable, I don't think. And that's that's the real rationale for it. Uh, and I wanted to ask another question, but you sort of answered that uh, also a few minutes ago. You talked about it because one, one criticism that some people have against BDS is that it's a blanket punishment against all academics, because there are academics in Israel who are against apartheid, who are against the way Palestinians are being treated. Uh, but I guess you made the case clear that it's it doesn't target individual academics. I mean, in, academics who teach there, but it's those who hold positions or who are responsible for some of these um, for the actions, or maybe they get funding from the government to to do military projects, which is something that every university does, but now we're talking about the state, which is accused of, uh, about a settler colonial state, which has suppressed uh, Palestinians for, for over 70 years now. Um, so I don't know if you want to expand on that or... Yeah, look, maybe the, the main point there is just that there are voices within Israeli academia itself who support the academic boycott of Israel. You know, the Israeli academia in general is uh, not sympathetic in the least to the Palestine Solidarity Movement. That's putting it extremely charitable. You know, there's uh, a culture of anti-Palestinianism on uh, in, in the academic profession in Israel. Of course, it wouldn't admit that. It wouldn't admit that. But I think the facts corroborate that, um, that anal- analysis. But nevertheless, despite that, there are honourable voices within Israeli academia who support the academic boycott, just as within Israeli society, there are Israeli voices who support the BDS movement more generally. Mm-hmm. And as a final question, you know, the current, I think when you wrote the book, the current conflict uh there wasn't any conflict like what it is now in October between Israel and Palestine or what's happening in Gaza right now. But what do you think the implications are, given the current political situation in Israel, about some of the issues you have raised in the book? And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I came across several other people calling for BDS again more in the past week or so, given in the light of what has been happening in the past week. Absolutely. I mean, Palestinians have been calling for BDS collectively since 2004, 2005. There's no campaign that has ever had such a comprehensive mandate from Palestinian civil society. I mean, that that initial call for the boycott of Israel and and also for divestment and sanctions was issued by 173 Palestinian organisations, things like unions, um, religious groups, charities, and a, v- a very wide range of civil society actors in Palestine are behind the boycott call. And I don't think it's ever been more important than it is now because, of course, you know, the, the scale of what we're observing in, in Gaza is it defies words. It defies words. It's a, a, a crime of the most 
blood chilling, spine chilling proportions. It's also not the first time, though, that Israel has embarked on a campaign of ethnic cleansing. It's an intensification of the same policies of ethnic cleansing and genocide that have driven its policies towards Palestine from the start. And for that reason, I think that the, the, the current horrifying events that we're seeing really confirm the analysis in the book. Obviously, you know, that we're not going to solve what's happening in Gaza now by boycotting Israeli universities. It would be absurd to even su- suggest that. But the academic boycott is part of this broader nonviolent movement, which is aimed at shifting global public opinion and isolating Israel. And surely the necessity of that couldn't be clearer. It just couldn't be clearer now, I think. Um, <clears throat> and we've seen the way that Israeli universities have swung behind the war effort, the current war effort. You know, I just was looking at this recently. The Hebrew University in Jerusalem expressed on social media its, quote, unwavering support for the Israeli Defence Forces. The Technion has said that it's helping Israel or its community is helping Israel during wartime in every way we can. The Association of University Heads in Israel which is the sort of peak body for for the rectors or presidents of Israeli universities. It wrote, actually, to thousands of university leaders across the world. And one of the things, calling on them to stand with Israel more decisively, and one of the things it said really struck me in that letter, it said, there are not good people on both sides. It said, there are not good people on both sides. So just think about that. That, I think can only be read as an an invitation to condemn outright the entirety of the resistance in the Gaza Strip unconditionally, without any contextualization, to reject them as an instantiation of pure moral evil, unacceptability. It's profoundly, I think, it's not only anti-intellectual, I think it's also, uh, it's, it's profoundly politically reactionary and wrong, Um, yet that is what the Association of University Heads in Israel is. It's actively encouraging university leaders to adopt this profoundly violent, I think, uh, stigmatisation of a phenomenon that actually needs to be understood more urgently than anything else. Well, uh, let us hope for better days. And uh, just before we end, the, we end the conversation, I'd like to highlight that the book is uh, is not simply a polemical book. There's a lot of lot of great historical information in the book, some of which which you, uh, you you have mentioned here in this interview. And I strongly encourage our listeners to pick up and read the book. There is a lot to think about. And as I said, uh, to me, the fascinating parts were the historical information. And it's not simply a polemical argument, but there's actually a lot of historical factual evidence uh, for that in the book as well. Dr. Nick Reimert, Reimert, thank you very much for spending time to talk with us about your book on New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Morteza. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.